Hi everyone, and welcome to this exclusive podcast brought to you by BJ Oncology. I'm excited to introduce our esteemed panel of experts to talk about the latest developments in lung cancer presented at the ASCO 2021 annual meeting. Chairing this session with Melissa Johnson from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, and to be joined by Lisa Hendricks from Maastricht University in the Netherlands and Heather Wakeley from Stanford University in California. In this podcast, the panel will discuss immune checkpoint inhibitors in the adjuvant setting and biomarkers of response, as well as targeted approaches on their way to approval, including KRS inhibitors, HER-free directed antibody drug conjugates, and EGFR exon 20 inhibitors. I'll now pass you over to the experts for today's lung cancer session with VJ Oncology. Welcome to VJ Oncology's post-ASCO discussions. We'll be focusing today on the take-home lessons uh, from the ASCO 2021 meeting uh, as they focus on the field of non-small cell lung cancer. I'm thrilled to introduce our panel today. First, I have Dr. Heather Wakeley, who is the Chief of the Division of Oncology at Stanford University. She's the Deputy Director of the Stanford Cancer Institute. And as of September 2021, will be our ISLAC president. I'm also joined by, by Dr. Lisa Hendricks, who is a pulmonologist specializing in lung cancer research at Maastricht University Medical Center. She is an, uh, an assistant professor at the Research Institute GROW School of Oncology and Developmental Biology, and just in 2021 has been appointed to the Young Academy at the Royal Netherlands Academy of Sciences. So welcome to both of you. I am Melissa Johnson. I'm the director of the Lung Cancer Research Program at Sarah Cannon. We're uh, thrilled to, uh, to have you all with us today. Um, so let's start with, uh, it was a big ASCO all around our second virtual meeting. Uh, certainly we've Im improved and uh, made many strides over the last year. But uh, Dr. Wakeley, could I ask you to kick us off uh, with a discussion of the abstract that you presented um, as part of the oral abstract session um, about adjuvant atezolizumab? Certainly. Thanks, Melissa. It's great to, to be here and part of this discussion. So the Empower 010 study was the first phase three adjuvant immune therapy trial to read out. Um, and the study randomized just over a thousand patients after they had had complete resection for early stage lung cancer. They were enrolled and received chemotherapy cisplatin-based doublet for up to four cycles and then randomized. So it was 1,005 patients to, to get a year of atezolizumab or just to be followed with, with supportive care. And the study was um, designed to do hierarchical testing as we often do in, in these sorts of designs. And so the first population analyzed were patients whose tumors expressed PDL1, and that ended up being about 55% of the patients, and using that SP263 assay, so one of the tissue-based assays, tumor-based assays, um, and the stage 2 to 3A. And that was 90% of the patients enrolled, only 12% had 1B. So when we look at the stage 2 to 3A, with PDL1 expression, that first population, the disease-free survival hazard ratio was 0.66. So highly statistically significant and, and pretty exciting. Um, so we also then looked at 
all comers with stage two to three A. And there it was statistically significant, but that hazard ratio narrowed and it was 0.79. One of the exciting things when we look at the curves is patients only had a year of treatment, but we have follow-up to over 32 months now and the curves are staying separated. We don't yet have, um, we haven't had enough events to uh, have significance crossed when we bring in that 1B patient population. So we don't have any final there. The trends look encouraging, but we don't know. And same with overall survival. Way too early, at least some encouraging separation, but very, very early. I think a couple of key points from the study are when we look at pdl one expression and how that influenced disease-free survival, when we looked at that all-comer stage to 3A, it was pretty clear um, with at least 1% expression, 066 with greater than 50% expression, 0.43 disease-free survival hazard ratio. Um, but when we look at those who didn't have any pd one expression on their tumors, that disease-free survival hazard ratio was 0.97, so not significant. So there does seem to be that biomarker importance. The other thing we did on the study was we looked for EGFR and ALK in the patients with non-squamous histology. The study had about two-thirds non-squamous, one-third squamous. So for the squamous patients, we didn't test EGFR and ALK, and so they remain unknown um, And when you look at the kind of who went on the trial. But for the patients with non-squamous that got tested, and it was about 10% had EGFR, um, 3% ALK. In the ALK patients, there's not a hint of benefit with atezolizumab. And that's really important because a lot of those patients have high pdl one So it's really important to, I always emphasize that whenever talking is if you get a pdl one level back in a patient who you're suspicious might have a driver, don't start until you know what that driver is. And this reinforces that. The EGFR story is a bit more complicated. In all comers, nothing. In the EGFR patient, um, EGFR mutated tumors with pdl one expression, a hint of something, but I think that given the profound benefit with EGFR TKIs in the setting, I, I wouldn't act on that right now, but we'll just have to see how things play out. So that was a probably a little more than you wanted to hear, but there's so many different aspects of the study. So I always like to, to go into a few of those details, but um, really exciting disease-free survival hazard ratio for the pdl one expressing um, tumor patients with pdl one expressing tumors. So Thanks, Heather. Might just ask a follow-up question. Have you uh, found patients in your clinic uh, to prescribe atezolizumab to already? Are you starting to think about uh, when you would apply this? So I haven't yet, but I've certainly been hearing from some of our surrounding community physicians um, that they are. Um, And so that's interesting because we, of course, don't have the FDA approval yet. Um, And, uh, you know, it's one of the Uh, unique aspects, I think, of being able to practice in the United States is that we do have these off-label opportunities. And so people sometimes jump on data early for better or worse. Lisa, let's let's move to you um, and talk about another interesting abstract that uh, was not the first time that we've heard uh, this abstract presented, the Tong 1103 trial, a, a Chinese uh, multi-center trial. Um, this was an updated analysis. Um, do you want to take us through that just briefly? Important uh, uh, given the abstract Heather presented. Yeah, I think the, the, the key summary is that this was a randomized phase two trial, so a smaller trial, including 72 patients with an activating EGFR mutation. 
uh, stage 3A N2 disease, uh, pathology proven uh, or FDG PET positive, I think. And these patients received new adjuvant therapy. They were randomized one-to-one to either allotinib, uh, 150 milligram one, uh, once a day for six weeks or platinum-based uh, dublet for two cycles. Then they were restaged and uh, went to surgery if no progression. After surgery, they either received one year of adjuvant allotinib or two cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy. Uh, primary endpoint was uh, response rate, and that was reported already, and it was significantly higher uh, in those treated with allotinib. And now uh, where the long-term uh, survival results were reported, progression-free survival. So the progression-free survival was also significantly longer uh, for adjuvant or neoadjuvant allotinib, with uh, I think around 21 months and uh, 11 months for chemotherapy. But with long-term follow-up, the overall survival was completely the same in, in both arms. And I think there were not really, you couldn't really identify a subgroup that really benefited from um, uh, the EGFR TKI strategy, maybe the elderly patients, maybe the, the multi-level N2, but not really anything yeah, that, that would make you, I think, prescribe this uh, outside of a clinical trial. And, and also this is a randomized phase two. Um, I think what was interesting was that patients that progressed and uh, received again an EGFR TKI compared to those uh, that progressed after chemotherapy and then received an EGFR TKI, the response rates on EGFR TKI were the same. So in, in this case, it doesn't seem like um, that patients develop resistance uh, after new adjuvant and adjuvant EGFR TKI. Yeah, it is a an interesting juxtaposition with uh, with some of the other data that is emerging. Maybe I'll just mention uh, one last abstract, and then we'll try to put all of these in context. And that is the uh, the IMPACT trial, which was a Japanese trial, uh, enrolled uh, 234 patients between September of 2011 and December of 2015. So this is a trial with um, 71 months follow-up at this point, which strengthens uh, the trial results, certainly. Um, all patients in this trial, once again, had EGFR mutations, and they were randomized after surgery to receive gefitinib, 250 milligrams once a day for two years versus cisplatin, venerelbine, typical adjuvant chemotherapy at 80 milligrams per meter and 25 milligrams per meter day one, day eight. Um, and so while the, uh, the initially it did appear that patients who received the TKI were doing better, um, the disease-free survival and the median disease-free survival was 36 months for patients treated with gefitinib and 25 months, uh, so 11 months uh, between them for patients treated with chemotherapy. Yet the hazard ratio over the lifetime of the trial was 0.92, and the Kaplan-Meier uh, curve showed that the that the lines went back together again um, at, after five years, and they crossed at five years. Um, so just like the data that Liza presented, we see um, this question of how do we move. Uh, uh, targeted therapies, if you will, up into the adjuvant and the neoadjuvant setting is more always better or, and is earliest always better, maybe not. I would say these second two abstracts suggest, suggest that uh, it won't be everybody that will benefit from um, an early, earliest uh, uh, strategy. 
I might ask if either of you have comments also about the Checkmate 816 trial. Of course, it was reported at AACR this year, chemo and immune therapy, nivolumab in this case, um, up front for, uh, for three cycles uh, prior to re resection and then surgical outcomes reported at ASCO. Mm -hmm. um, any thoughts about this? Well, I, I thought the, the Checkmate 816 was really exciting data. It, we, of course, we don't have the patient relevant data. We have the surgical relevant data that's been presented and it was encouraging. I mean, they had pretty high rates of pathological complete responses, you know, 25% or so, a little outlier for earlier stage, but that was small numbers. Um, and I think I, it was reassuring that if you looked at the surgical outcomes, they were actually better with the chemo plus immune therapy versus chemo alone. There had been some concern that by bringing in that extra modality, there could be inflammation, it might impact the surgical outcomes, but it, it actually improved them. And so that's really hopeful. Um, we've also seen a little bit about the toxicity and not too many surprises, but we really don't know what does this mean then for disease-free survival for patients and ultimately overall survival as you were just highlighting is, is really what matters if we're trying to cure patients, right? Just giving people more treatment early versus actually changing whether it cures them. They, these are slightly different questions. Um, so I, I was encouraged by the data, but I think we need to, we need to see more before we know what it means. I think that's an uh, that's an important theme that um, that maybe all of this data together highlights. But uh, there's been a lot of discussions in the U.S. Liz, I'll, I'll be interested to know about in the Netherlands and in Europe about which is better. You know, Checkmate 816 or Empower 010. What are you going to do? And and I think uh, Dr. Wakeley makes a, Heather makes a really good point that like we're comparing apples and oranges a little bit still until we have this later data uh, like the Tada and the Wu abstracts Japanese and Chinese abstracts showed us. What are your colleagues saying in Europe? I think in, in the Netherlands we also have quite some discussion on, on how to proceed. In the end, I think you need biomarkers, but I think at the moment it's, it's very difficult because usually in early stage you have a small biopsy before you proceed to resection and, and, and nothing more. And you need to also be quick to you know, start treating the patients. Um, I think there's a discussion ongoing on, on chemo IO compared to, to IO neoadjuvant. And in general, you will have better results with chemo IO, but yeah, you also want to identify those that, that are having enough with only immunotherapy. Um, and I think the, the big advantage of neoadjuvant therapy is that you will have the tissue, that you will have uh, the, yeah, your outcome on, on immunotherapy and chemotherapy, and you hope that it will be associated with long-term disease-free survival and overall survival. So it's a, a bigger opportunity for yeah, biomarker research. Um, I think it's easier for to give adjuvant therapy, um, but patient selection, again, as Heather also indicated, uh, plays a role. And I think maybe one of the, the biggest messages is that we also need to start doing biomarker testing in early disease. You don't want to give, especially your ALK rearranged patient, but probably also not your EGFR, your ROS1 patient, immunotherapy, I think, because in general results are not that good, especially if you uh, extrapolate the stage three and stage four data. And you know that you have significant toxicity if you give a TKI after immunotherapy in general. So you want to avoid immunotherapy if it's not necessary in these patients. 
Yeah, I, I think that's really well said. Uh, the and does in a way that I hadn't thought of add support to the importance of the biomarker testing yep. in the adjuvant setting. Uh, before we leave this topic, Heather, are you, are, at Stanford, uh, mm -hmm. tell us what the state of the art is for biomarker testing um, in the in the adjuvant setting right now. Are you, have you been able to uh, convince your health systems to let you do that? Uh, so we we are testing. Um, and uh, part of it is we've been participating in the alchemist study. And so, you know, we've gotten into a, a role with always looking for EGFR and ALK and then for PDL1 as part of that bigger study. Um, and Alchemist, of course, has stopped for the EGFR component um, after Adora. Um, uh, but patients are still being followed for that. The ALK portion of that is still ongoing. And I think that we still don't know what's going to be the best adjuvant treatment for an ALK patient and if we can extrapolate, right? So there's still key questions, but we're able to do that. We're also able to test our stage three unresectable patients. Um, and what our biggest research effort that's ongoing right now is actually looking at that MRD, um, the minimal residual disease, if there is any, um, and testing patients for that using um, our platform and then deciding to give additional treatment based on that or not. Because I, I think that what we really need to be looking at is how do we give all the treatment needed to try to cure patients, but no extra, right? Because as we bring in treatment and even with ONO, I mean, we definitely, there's toxicity when you give a checkpoint inhibitor, some patients end up with pretty significant autoimmune problems. And that's true, whether it's metastatic or early stage or whatever cancer it is. And so we don't want to be giving everybody those drugs if they're not going to help because the, the toxicity doesn't care whether or not your tumor responds. That's a, it's just, you know, they're separate biomarkers. And so I think that's, those are the big questions that we need to really address is how do we give all the treatment needed to the right patients and none of the extra treatment. Um, and I think that MRD is gonna play a, a big role there. Um, so. Very, uh, I agree, MRD is a very promising new uh, addition to the to the testing. Lisa, what, what about you? Um, are you do, what kind of biomarker testing are you able to do in the adjuvant setting? And, and maybe, and what about, what about uh, struggles or challenges in the neoadjuvant setting right now? I think it, in, in general, in the Netherlands, it's not in the guidelines. There is no, no formal reimbursement. So, yeah, we select patients for, for biomarker testing. So if you now have a never a, a light smoker or a very young patient, you, you do it. But yeah, it's not yeah, if you do it for every patient, you will have a financial problem. Um, and in the Netherlands, you cannot prescribe, uh, for example, adjuvant immunotherapy already after uh, surgery because it's it's not approved, not reimbursed. Um, so it, it's just not possible. Um, but I think we are moving and we are negotiating now uh, to have biomarker testing for all of these patients. Um, yeah. And preferably clinical trial, I think with all these results, with, with the Checkmate, with the Empower, with the Adaura, I think you also have, if you have a clinical trial, you have very convincing results to, to ask the patient to participate in an, another clinical trial, for example, with MRD, which we have now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. Uh, certainly in the adjuvant setting where yeah. the goal is cure, um, that's a great goal for, for all patients and, and all doctors. Well, let's switch gears then and spend a little bit of time talking about some of the other uh, interesting uh, uh, therapies of note from ASCO 20. 
2021. Um, in some ways, uh, just like in 2020, when we had we saw a couple FDA approvals right before ASCO, um, that was also borne out at this year's uh, meeting. Um, so I, I won't steal uh, your thunder the way the FDA did ASCO's. Uh, <laughs> Heather, why don't you uh, why don't you talk about the Sculetis paper? Yeah, so that is with the sodorastib. Um, so the, the first uh, KRAS inhibitor ever approved, all the ones currently in development, well, believe one's in development, it's focused on the G12C um, with that C, the cysteine being really important part of the way that the drug works uh, as far as forming those bonds. Um, and that's what made the undruggable somewhat druggable, um, at least for that, that patient population. And the reports from ASCA were on just over 120 patients um, showing it that the 960 milligram dosing that the response rate was 37%. And so we'd seen response numbers kind of flip around a, a little bit and with small numbers of patients. But now I think that's probably a pretty good number to put in mind as to about the likelihood of response. And the duration of response was around 11 months. And so that also was a little longer than what we'd heard about in some of the earlier reports. So that's encouraging. And to me, it makes it an absolute go-to medication for patients in second line who have a KRAS G12C mutation in their tumors. Um, they also followed up on some data that had come out earlier too with the co-mutation questions. So SDK11 and KEEP1. KEEP1 continues to be a bad actor, but even with a KEEP1 mutation, and numbers are small, but it was 20% response to the drug and so with sodorosib. So that doesn't mean I wouldn't use it, just I would be less enthusiastic about it. Um, and then with SDK11, even though that's been a bad actor with chemo and immune therapy in a lot of reports, at least in this uh, presentation, um, and I, I follow up to earlier work as well, it, it didn't seem to be a negative actor. So if you have the uh, KRAS G12C and you have SDK11 mutations in the tumor, those patients, if anything, did better than if they didn't have the SDK11, certainly not worse. And so that was encouraging to see because SDK11 were we, we trying to make sense of that as well. So it was exciting and um, I think certainly warrants the approval. And now all the questions are around, well, when would we use it first line? When do we, you know, what else should we give second line? I think, but to me, it it's my second line go-to drug now for my patients with uh, KRAS G12C. Yeah, I think uh, it is exciting for all the reasons that you mentioned, but just in the world that we live in where the standard for so many, especially mm -hmm. with tumors without high levels of pd one is chemoimmunotherapy, three drugs typically, it's a formidable challenge to figure out how to, you know, find a niche in the front line. Um, and, you know, is that a is that a monotherapy strategy? Mm -hmm. Is that a is that a combination strategy? And if so, what with what? Liza, what, uh, what are you? Um, have you had discussions about uh, about KRAS G12C positive patients before second line? Before, do you think it's feasible to find these patients in the front line before they get chemo immunotherapy? In, in your practice? Yeah, I think in, in, in the Netherlands, it's, it's usual to do next generation sequencing PDL1 um, before you start your first line treatment. Uh, so you know whether the patient has a KRAS G12C. 
yeah, again, in the Netherlands, not reimbursed, not approved, so we cannot just prescribe it. Uh, but trials also in first line are ongoing. And, and I think now you really need to raise awareness with your colleagues that, that are not following all new drugs, that, that also KRAS G12C is an option to target. I think for years we always uh, stated KRAS, yeah, nothing to target, chemo, chemoimmuno, whatever. And now you really need to be aware what type of KRAS mutation a patient has and, and whether there is a clinical trial available. And also for, yeah, we have now second line trials ongoing. But you, you really need to refer patients, I, I think, for a clinical trial, if you, especially if you progress after chemoimmunotherapy. The standard option is, I think, docetaxel with a, the poor response rate, poor overall survival, poor progression-free survival. So you really sh should give your patient a chance and, and see whether something is available. I think the most interesting thing about this this um, more mature data set with Sotorasib was to me the duration of response of 11 months, because anytime you have an oral therapy that you're giving, you know, daily with reports of nausea, GI side effects, diarrhea, even some creatinine elevation, as we've seen with this and and other direct KRAS G12C inhibitors, the amount of time that you can give that drug is sometimes the, the devil's in the details there that if you can only do it for six weeks, it's not a tenable strategy. So many times when we've tried to target KRAS in the past with other uh, inhibitors in the MAP kinase pathway, they're just not tolerable. So to me, the watching the duration of response of uh, as it matures for Sotorasib and also Adagrasib made by Marathi, that's a fast follower. Uh, perhaps to approval um, will be very interesting. I've also thought it was interesting that um, people uh, have shown up at Sarah Cannon for trials with a KRAS mutation with Sotorasib written, you know, on a piece of paper because their doctor has heard about it and they're wanting it, but they'll have a KRAS G12D mutation or a KRAS G12V mutation. Um, so we found that 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 there are there's. A heightened awareness, um, but also I think a heightened awareness on the part of uh, pharma biotech. Uh, we've seen an increase in the number of uh, therapeutic options in trials. Uh, Heather, you're nodding. Is that have you seen that as well, or other comments? Yes. Well, I think um, you know the other KRAS mutations definitely remain um, a challenge. So we have a investigator initiated study that we're doing. Um, I wanted to mention too with. Lung map. Um, so within the U.S. Cooperative Group Network, there is a study with um, combining sotorasib with other compounds when there are specific co-mutations that might be resistance mutations. So I, I think um, this is really exciting, but we're not done. Um, so there's still a lot of research that needs to, to keep happening. And I, I agree that it's, it's really amazing that we can offer something to some patients with KRS mutations, but we still have a lot of uh, big questions to answer. That might be a good time to transition because that, that sums it up really nicely. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the other uh, targeted approaches that showed promise. Um, Passiani uh, reported uh, patricumab deruxtecan's experience, which of course is a HER3-directed antibody drug conjugate uh, made by Daichi Senkyo. Um, in, uh, in this trial, uh, he reported an experience of 81 patients um, 
all with uh, non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, all with EGFR mutations. Um, the majority of patients had previously been treated with ocimertinib and platinum. So this was the, the um, unmet need of acquired resistance to ocimertinib, which is a relatively new field um, after the FLORA data changed the standard of care a few years ago. Um, the response rate that Dr. Yane reported was 40 or 39%, I should say, uh, PFS 8.2 months um, with a duration of response of seven months. Again, uh, speaking to the uh, well-tolerated nature of this antibody drug conjugate that's given once every three weeks IV. Um, I think the coolest part of this analysis was the slide that showed all of the mechanisms of resistance of patients coming into the trial right below their little position on the waterfall plot. The majority of patients had some disease response, and then we saw it didn't matter what their uh, their mechanism of resistance was. If it was EGFR driven still like C797S, for example, was it non-EGFR driven like KRAS, BRAF, uh, HER2? Um, was it uh, an amplification of a gene like EGFR, once again, um, like CCNE1? All of these we're uh, used to seeing when we profile these patients after OC-mertinib resistance. Um, and to have an option for all of them with a response rate of 40% seemed pretty good. Um, the, on, the only criticism perhaps of this uh, abstract that I've heard is just that the responses didn't correlate so well with HER3 expression within the tumor. And so while we hypothesize the way this drug works is by seeking out HER3, um, there wasn't a, a crisp correlation um, uh, in the data presented. And so I think there's, there's more to come here. Um, we, we've treated a number of patients with, with this drug at Sarah Cannon um, and have, have really seen some uh, impressive responses. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about this, about this agent. Lizzo, let's let's uh, pass the ball to you now um, and tell us a little bit about, this was a big year for EGFR Exxon 20, a very tiny little subset of patients in lung cancer. Tell us about some of the work that was presented. I think for the, the last couple of years, we didn't have much therapy for these patients. So the, the first, second generation EGFR TKI were tried and I think were quite disappointing. Also osimertinib. Where, yeah, sometimes maybe double dose, but, but in general, response rate and, and progression-free survival quite low. And now we are seem to getting more and more options. Uh, at ESCO, uh, the Mobocertinib exclaim data were presented. So this was a phase one, two study uh, with uh, ex uh, expansion and extension cohorts. And the platinum pretreated um, uh, extension uh, and expansion cohorts were uh, presented. Uh, with just over 100 patients, so uh, an update. And response rates were not what you see with the classical EGFR mutations, but you know, 25, 28%, but with a median progression-free survival of over uh, seven months. And I think a very interesting duration of response. So those dead response uh, respond very well with uh, 17 and a half months were quite interesting. I, I think what can be a problem with this drug, we, we discussed tolerability uh, and this drug has quite some uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, skin problems. So quite often those uh, reductions are necessary. And uh, it seems that, that yeah, the 
those managements uh, are uh, updated with a better support of care, but still I think this is not an easy drug to give. What you hope also with, with EGFR TKI, also for the EGFR Exxon 20, that you have uh, brain penetration and uh, efficacy in the brain. Uh, but this drug, uh, first side of progression was quite often the brain and those with baseline brain metastasis didn't do that well. So I think here's really an unmet need uh, for EGFR Exxon 20 to also have uh, drugs uh, that work in the brain. Uh, and we have more options. We have amivantamab, so an EGFR uh, MET antibody. Um, response rates are, I think, in the range, maybe a little bit above uh, the, the mobocertinib data, but small uh, numbers of patients who are difficult to compare. Uh, but really different toxicity, uh, maybe infusion reactions, a rash uh, compared to the gastrointestinal um, uh, side effects of mobocertinib. Um, Progression-free survival, I think, similar. Um, Poziotinib, um, maybe a little bit less impressive response rates, 14-15%, uh, and also, again, quite significant toxicity. But there was a poster presentation uh, where it was shown that it had some brain activity. So maybe this could be a position for uh, poziotinib. And there were um, also a, a new uh, Exxon 20 uh, inhibitor, DZD9008, Phase one, low number of patients, but also I think a quite interesting response rate and maybe a little bit less toxicity. So I think we, we should watch this space and again, test for these patients. And, and also I think check your patients that are living long. Usually they, these patients don't live long, but really check whether you have patients where you missed the Exxon 20 mutation and mm -hmm. see whether there's something available. Yeah. I just met a patient uh, with an EGFR Exxon 20 insertion yesterday, and she had read about amivantamab already and said, why can't I skip the chemo um, and give uh, and get this first? And I sort of thought about it and decided that, you know, it probably wouldn't be a good idea. Um, I probably wouldn't be able to get it uh, uh, covered. But I do you think, Liza, that that these drugs will also will will be strong enough to make the slide into that front line setting for this subset of patients as well? I think in, in monotherapy, I think not. You would like to have a higher response rate, longer progression-free survival. Um, so for amivantamab, you have the Papillot trial that's ongoing. Uh, amivantamab plus plametrexate plus carboplatin uh, compared with uh, carboplatin alone. So I think it's an interesting option. To be honest, I would have liked to see chemo IO maybe as the comparator. We know that immunotherapy, monotherapy doesn't work in these patients, but maybe a combination could work. Uh, but unfortunately, that, that was not tested. I think also with, with yeah, regulatory uh, problems otherwise. Uh, Mobocertinib is uh, being evaluated against chemotherapy. So we will have data and it will be interesting to see these data. Uh, but I think for now it, it's not strong enough to move to first line. Yeah, it, but uh, it, I think an interesting, uh, uh, interesting um, growth or uh, uh, progress nonetheless. Yeah, sure. You also see these drugs that all, uh, that two were classic TKIs, perhaps one with great brain penetration, mm -hmm. but also uh, this bispecific antibody, yeah. the amivantamab being an EGFR and met bispecific, seeing some new 
mechanisms of action that patritumab directs to can as well um, in lung cancer is to me was an exciting um, sort of glimmer of sunshine that, that we're moving into some new spaces. Who knows what will be coming? Were there other little glimmers of sunshine or uh, maybe not specific abstracts or maybe so that, that you will take away from ASCO 2021? Maybe, maybe I'll start with Heather. Um, I, I think we've really talked about some of the, the most exciting developments. Um, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's a very complex world in, in lung cancer um, with so many different agents um, looking into the same spaces, which is great because it means we can really pick the winners and be able to offer the best options for our patients. Um, we're still frustrated by resistance. Uh, tumors remain very clever. And so just trying to, I, I think for me, I very much applaud all the work being done and understanding when the drugs are working, why, and when they stop working, why, so that we can really have more informed choices to offer our patients as we continue to, to understand more and more and move into the future. So there was a lot of that that I was also looking at and, and found pretty intriguing. Thank you. And, and Liza, what about you? Maybe to add, um, we, we talk about biomarker testing, new drugs, but there was also a presentation that at most, quite a lot of patients don't receive all the testing. So even the, the, the targets where you have approved drugs are not being tested in all patients or are not being tested before starting first line. I think this is a very strong message also mm -hmm. really to have a biopsy, even a liquid biopsy and test your patient because it, it really matters for the patient. Yeah, I agree with you. That that was a uh, maybe not a uh, maybe not a, a ray of sunshine, but no, no sorry, no. <laughs> but a reality. Uh, I think that uh, speaks not just to. I think the medical oncologists know, but it's uh, getting enough tissue and it's uh, understanding from the perspective of the payers across yeah. the world that we need this testing to be uh, reimbursed uh, at diagnosis and mm -hmm. not as patients go along. There are so many aspects of, of this problem that I would love to unpack um, because I think it, it is much more uh, deep seated than just uh, a knowledge gap amongst our colleagues. Right. One other thing that I will take away from this year's uh, this year's ASCO was the amount of ctDNA work uh, across many tumor types or in, in, uh, across many subtypes of lung cancer, I mean to say, and uh, how you can use the disappearance of ctDNA clones to track how your patients are doing, similar to what Heather talked about with respect to um, um, MRD status in the adjuvant setting. Um, I think that there is a, a, a lot more that uh, we can learn from the blood. And uh, since that's so much easier to access than tissue, um, I, I have been using blood testing for a long time, um, just from its practical advantages and was glad to see that. All right, well, I think we're almost at the end of our time today. I just wanna thank uh, the uh, Heather and Liza for uh, their discussions. Um, it, it was a great discussion. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for joining us and uh, see you in ASCO 2022.
Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this post-ASCO session with VJ Oncology. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.